Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Just as a, a little bit of background or something you guys might not know about me, um, when I was in high school, um, there were a few things that I was involved in, but one of the areas I really loved was to be a part of the debate team. And I was also involved in model parliaments. I was a minister in the Ontario government. I represented Guyana and also uh, Jordan at a model United Nations. And I think if you look at this, there's a couple of things you can draw or inferences about things you can know about me. I think the first one is, yes, I am a nerd, I am a geek. And I think the second inference you can draw is that I like to argue and I like to debate. Um, I, again, I think there was something about these experiences that drew, I drew great joy, maybe an unhealthy level of joy, from being able to lay out sort of a well-reasoned argument and craft it beautifully, or to be able to listen to somebody else and sort of go, oh, I'm gonna poke a hole here in your argument, I'm gonna suggest maybe you're not quite right there. And I thought that, hey, this is something that's really great. I learned that if you sound really confident when you're talking, people will go, oh, yeah, he must be right. Um, that felt pretty good. But apparently, when, when you move into your personal relationships, um, when you get married, <laughs> I think you know where I'm going. Maybe this approach is not always the best. It doesn't lead to the outcomes you want to see. Um, I had the realization that apparently poking holes in uh, the arguments or the perspectives or the beliefs of the people I loved wasn't necessarily the most loving thing to do. I also realized that um, if I ran across somebody who is like me, who liked to sort of get into it, um, we would sort of escalate. It would be sort of, I'd be poking, they'd be poking, and there'd be this buildup. Um, and, and again, if they were doing well, I get defensive and I'd sort of almost like my fists would go up and I'm like, okay, I want a battle here. Um, and I think if we look and turn to the world around us, I think one of the things that I've realized, uh, for better or for worse, is not, I'm not alone in this dynamic. You just have to open up your, your newspapers or more probably your web browsers, look at Twitter feed, look at Facebook to hear people debating and arguing to see that when people seem to engage, there seems to be something that shifts in the tone. There seems to be a shift away from, from this sort of loving relational engagement into this battle or, or conflict mode. Um, I think it's probably the reason why um, the old idiom about dinner parties is you should never be talking about religion and you should never talk about politics, right? Um, and, and again, I think this is something that's widespread, but I don't think it's just an, an out there thing. I think this is also a sort of, again, a, a church reality. Um, I was looking and I was recently reading a study that was examining the um, lives of children who grew up in religious families. And what the researchers found when they looked at these children is they saw that um, in a particular set of engagements, the children were actually, who grew up in religious homes, were actually less loving, um, less kind, and less empathetic than their peers. And I think the inference, what the, what the studies authors were trying to say, is that when somebody feels really confident about the truth that they have, that they can put themselves above the people that are around them 
and maybe not treat them with the kindness they want to. And I think that's something as I look at church history, I would say this holding dogmatically to beliefs is something that we see the way in which over history it has impacted the lives of others, right? Whether those are beliefs about women as the uh, source of sin, whether that's the beliefs about um, the Jews killing Jesus, or um, I could point to, to slavery or any other number of dogmatic beliefs that the church has held in history, um, and I think we would now universally say those are wrong, holding tightly to those beliefs led the church to do things that were pretty unloving to those around them. So what has our culture responded? I think the, the, the answer has to been move from this, hey, I'm going to hold to truth closely, I'm going to hold tight on to what's right, towards an anything-goes response. If I don't want to upset people, I don't want to fight with people, then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say, hey, whatever, whatever works. And rather than saying, this is what I believe that's right, what I'm going to say is, hey, this is what works for me, or um, as, as I hear the young kids say, they, the, the response to others is, yeah, you do you. So if, if that response, again, I, I, I appreciate it and when I spent time growing up after university, I spent time living in a bunch of different countries. And as I started to live in, in Africa and in India and in Europe, I began to realize, man, maybe I'm a lot less right than I thought I was. Maybe my perspective is shaped more by my cultural perspective than I realized. I think I began to be a little less quick to jump to this, oh, I'm right about everything. But at the same time, I also encountered things that really I think where I said, no, I believe that there is something true that I do need to respond to. Um, when I was living in India, I actually lived in, in the state Gujarat, about six months after um, a series of Hindu-Muslim riots had resulted in some pretty catastrophic things. There'd been probably over 2,000 deaths. There'd been stories of horrific violence, rape, torture, destruction. And, and as I looked at that, I thought, first of all, I think it's a pretty clear example of where ideology can go wrong. When it's held tightly, it can have such a negative impact on others. But at the same time, I think that the response can't be whatever, you, whatever is your truth goes. Because I think, and again, these aren't these I wouldn't say these people were acting out of true Hindu or true Muslim beliefs. They were just, again, they had a particular ideology they were acting out of. But I would say, I think there is a space that as a human being, my heart leapt out and said, no, there, there is a truth about how we should be dealing with others that I can't just say, oh, that's what I believe and whatever you believe is fine. There's something that I need to stand for. So, like, again, as, as Vijay was doing that exercise where we're saying, hey, where are people from? We live in a pluralistic city. We live in a culture where, again, people bring every possible different belief into our world. And I think um, we're placed in this place where, where we need to answer the question, um, how can we engage in truth in a way that it leads to love? Or said more specifically, I, I think about the church, um, how can we be people who hold tightly on to what is true? Because we think truth does matter, while at the same time responding to others with love. So, wrestling with this question um, about, again, what it, how do you be, hold on to truth and how do you hold on to love, 
is actually the exact setting for um, the letter of First John that we're going to be working through in July. Um, what was happening was there was this dynamic where um, a church, um, or probably a, a group of churches in and around Western Turkey, um, had had an experience where a group had broken away who had said, hey, we've had a new encounter and a new experience with God, and, and we want to speak out these truths. And I would say what we think they believed were a couple of things. That they believed that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, the Son of God. That he didn't come in the flesh. That his death wasn't necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And that as a result of relationship with God, one can be sinless. Now I think sitting here 2,000 years later, we can go, I think I feel pretty confident that these people are wrong and, and, and respond in that way. But imagine what would happen if, if this was actually what was taking place at Upper Room. Imagine that the people who are articulating a new truth or a new perspective weren't just some random people, but these were people who you knew, who you trusted, who you loved. For me, if somebody, if that was happening, if BJ or, or again, any of the other people here who I know began to say these things, I'd begin to doubt. I'd begin to question, like, am I right? Are they wrong? Like, how do I deal with this? I'd begin to wrestle with, like, how do I treat them? How do I work this out? How do we move forward? So again, this is the question. You have this unsettled group of people to which John the Apostle is writing this letter. And, and again, I think his response, um, again, is this response of saying, hey, there's a way to be confident in the truth while speaking it lovingly. And... If I were to say, hey, if I were writing letter first John, rewind back, put myself in John's shoes, my instinctive approach would be m to put my old debater hat on. And what I'd be doing is I'd be saying, okay, they believe belief one, here are the four reasons why that one's wrong, here's belief two, and here's my counterpoints. So to lay out this really logical argument to convince um, that, that church that, you know what, you can be confident because of all of these reasons. But what's interesting is that's not actually what John does. John doesn't respond with a set of ideas, but he responds differently. So let's turn to the very introduction of the letter of 1 John and read his response. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we've seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. What I think is striking as we read this, and again, the underlines, are, I think, make it pretty clear. John is not describing a set of ideas, but he's describing a relational encounter. He's saying, let me tell you about the Jesus I've seen. Let me tell you what I heard him say. Let me tell you about the person I've touched. And he's talking about relationship. For me, this sort of rewinding back, I actually, the first time I walked into to Upper Room, to, to this church, 
I walked in not as somebody who would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but actually wrestling with the very idea of whether Jesus could be who he says he is. And as I was exploring that, again, being a little bit nerdy, my instinctive approach was to wrestle from an intellectual perspective. And I very quickly began to realize that um, while sort of I'd say people, whether or not they believe, would say, yeah, Jesus it was a first century Jew who taught some pretty remarkable things. I think the th central thing that set faith in Christ apart from everything else was his resurrection. It was the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead um, that, that I think was the moment on which everything hinged. And again, that certainly didn't fit within my atheistic worldview. I had no explanation for why that supernaturally could happen. And as I explored, what I found most compelling for me was the reality that the New Testament, the writings about Jesus, were grounded in eyewitness testimony, right? Just like John was saying, the, the books of the New Testament, the biographies of Jesus and then the writings about him, were grounded in this idea of, hey, we want to share with you our own experiences. And this is actually what... Um, Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's describing the central message of, of, again, Jesus, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for what I have received, I've passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. So again, when Paul's writing, again, most of these people are alive. So what he's actually saying to his audience, he's saying, hey, you can actually check with these guys. They're in Jerusalem, sort of go connect with them. But for me, as I read this looking back in history, and as I was wrestling with this question about the resurrection, the question I have to face is what happened to these 500 people after their encounters with Jesus? And the reality is that the New Testament is a story of these people having an encounter with Jesus that transformed their lives. And as a result of that, heading out really across the entire known world to tell people about this relational experience. This relational encounter with Jesus was so transformative that they're like, hey, I need you to know about this. And they were so committed to that that they were willing to die. And while I think, hey, people can be ready to sort of advance an ideology to, to share a perspective, but what I couldn't wrap my head around was why would people die for something that they knew was not true? I couldn't figure out how it would be possible that these people would be willing to go to the point of pretty nasty torture if they knew Jesus hadn't been risen, raised from the dead. So if you're here and you're like, if you're in a place where I was, where you're sort of trying to wrestle with the truth of Jesus, my suggestion would be spend some time focusing on the resurrection, focusing on the eyewitness testimony, because I think there's lots of other things that, frankly, I still am unsure of, I'm still working out in my faith. But to me, this is, this is a, a pivot point around which we can focus. So going back to, to John, I think John's point here is, is again, this transformative encounter with, with Jesus. 
And what he is inviting his audience to do as he encourages them um, to be confident in the truth is he's inviting them, follow me to Jesus, who's the truth. He's saying, it's not an idea, it's a person. And I think for us today, there's actually the same invitation. John is extending in this letter across time and space the same invitation to follow John to Jesus who is the truth. And again, we talked about these, these 500 um, eyewitnesses. I think one of the things when I read through John's writings that strikes me is these aren't the writings of just one of those 500. These are the writings that come from one of the most intimate relationships that there was when Jesus walked the earth. For Jesus, among his 12 apostles, there were three in particular who were his closest confidants, uh, John, his brother James, and Peter. And these were the people that when, when Jesus needed to take a group for something specific, where it was a smaller group, these were the ones who went with him. They went with him um, up the mountain to the transfiguration where Jesus had a transformative encounter with God. They went with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. They went with him to pray the night before he died. And this is the person who's talking when he's writing First John. When he's saying, this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard, this isn't just somebody sharing. This is John, one of the people who's closest to Jesus during his life. So again, if, if I were to um, rewind back, think about those, uh, this argument, this, this encounter, this conflict where um, you have these people who are, who are making claims about who Jesus is and isn't in that church and is raising confusion. John's response isn't one of, well, they're mistaken and let me tell you why. His response is, no, I know Jesus. Like, this is, this is somebody who I, who I love, who I've spent time with. Imagine somebody sort of said to you, hey, sort of talking about somebody who you're close with, a spouse, a child, um, a, a, uh, a parent, a best friend, and they said, hey, you know what, you're, you're wrong about them, here's what's true about them. Your response would be, no, like, I know this person. Let me take you to them. Let me introduce you to this person. And that's what John is doing. And it actually, like, again, when we look at the text, when we look at this passage that where John is setting up um, the rest of his letter, he sets it up as an invitation into relationship. He says this, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, right? He says, hey, this is the Jesus that I know, that I love, that I've encountered, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Like, I want to invite you in, just like Jesus invited me in, John, I want to invite all of you into this same relationship with Jesus. And he says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Because John knows that to encounter and to know Jesus is to the same thing as to know his heavenly Father. Right? So, again, this whole focus of John's letter, the working out of his response to this community confused about truth and wrestling with how to respond to this conflict is not through logic, right? Logic, for me, it brings up this process of like questioning, challenging, conflict, set and response, arguing and defending. And that's really the problem 
that the world faces. Um, if, again, if truth is about ideas and ideology, then the way we interact with them is through debate and through conflict, not through love. And I think that that would be the temptation if I were John, is to engage in it. But I think John says something really, does something really significant. He says, truth is not a what. Truth is a who. And when he says that, I think it changes the conversation. And I think it can change the conversation for us. Right? Um, the way it shifts is, if somebody's challenging me about my belief in Jesus, I don't need to get defensive. I don't need to have all the answers. I don't need to have the exact right words because I can take them to a person. I can point them to an encounter that I've had. I can share the relational dynamic that I've experienced in exactly the same way John says. John says, hey, this is the person I know. We can do the same thing, right? Um, the other thing, as I was wrestling through this dynamic of shifting from um, encountering, talking with truth as a what versus a who, is a realization that um, when I'm having a conversation about ideas, I naturally bring myself into that conversation and put myself at the so center. I want to be right, I want to look good, I want to have the best words, so that, that brings me into it. But if we're having a conversation about Jesus, he's naturally the one who's at the center, right? And again, I think what's transformative is, as we talk through this series about the face of love, is that the person who's at the center of these conversations of tr about truth is the person who shows us what love really is. So, again, if we think about this, I think this shift from, encounter from seeking Jesus as, a, as truth rather than think seeking about the truth about Jesus, that shift gives us an ability to interact with the world around us. Right? Our culture is scared, I think, to, to engage with ideologies and with dogmas because we've seen the violence that's been done in their name. And I think that that's right. Um, and I would say further that there are many people um, in our lives who I think have been scarred by church people interacting with them where their own beliefs mattered more than the person on the other side of the conversation. So I think when we deal with Jesus and when we turn to him as a person, as a who and not a what, um, it's no longer a question of this radical, like fundamentalist, I'm going to die on a hill for the ideas, I'm going to fight for them, these are the things that are true. I think instead we're being invited not into a less sort of central or fundamental perspective. It's actually maybe an even more radical or fundamental commitment, but it's a radical fundamental commitment to a person rather than an idea. And I think as a community, as a people, as individuals, um, the more committed we are to Jesus as the source of truth, and the more committed we are to pointing people towards Jesus, the more we're able to respond in a loving way to the true diversity of ideas in the world around us. Um, again, if I were to describe like what this looks like, I think 
fundamentally when you're having a conversation about truth, it's saying, hey, like, I can't convince you with my reasons, but I can point you to a person. This Jesus, he's changed my life. And that's true. I have this relationship. I have this impact. And I really want you to know it. And so this relational encounter that John has had and that he's inviting us into is the way he works out the rest of his letter. Right? He works it out not rationally, as we said, but working out what does it mean to be sold out for Jesus rather than sold out for an ideology. And I think if I were to use a, a metaphor or a description for how the rest of the book is structured, um, the best example I could come up with is the idea of a spirograph. And I don't know if any of you used this growing up as a child. I didn't have an artistic bone in my body. Um, and so I thought this was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know, basically what it is, is it's these sort of large outer circle which has these gears, and then you could take these small discs which had holes in them and put a pen in the, in the disc, and you'd be able to circle around and around, and it would make these sort of subtle patterns that are simple, yet at least from my perspective, beautiful. Um, and I think that um, this spirograph is actually the, the way in which um, John approaches laying out his encounter with Jesus. He says, hey, listen, I don't want to sort of give you a long list of, and a structured list of this is sort of who Jesus is. I want to draw out sort of two or three really central truths about my relationship. This is the Jesus that I know and that I love, and I want to help you understand the implications of these. I want to create an image or a portrait for you. And I think if I were to say, like, what are the three themes that John uses to describe Jesus, the things that he comes back to over and over again in his letter, they're, they're these. He says, first of all, that Jesus is life. He says, Jesus is life. He was with God from the very beginning. Um, he is the source of all creation. And when he came to earth, he came to bring us and give us eternal life, the same eternal life he had. He says the second thing is Jesus is light. Jesus' coming into this world tells us that God is pure and that God is good. And he says, therefore, what that means for us is, is if, if we want to be in encounter and in relationship with him, we need to live likewise. And thirdly, he says, Jesus is love. Jesus is the very act of Jesus coming to earth, of sacrificing and of giving himself, is the picture, the essence, the epitome of what it means to be loving, to prefer the other to yourself. And he says, hey, I want to point you to what Jesus said, which is, hey, fundamentally, if we are experiencing this love from Jesus, then what that means for the relationships around us is that we too need to be loving. So he weaves these three strands together. And he comes back to them, alternating between these ideas about Jesus' identity, about the person of Jesus that he knows, that he's touched, that he's seen, that he's heard, um, and the implications for our lives. Um, I don't know if any of you realize this, but um, this book, 1 John, can actually be seen 
as a commentary on the Gospel of John, right? Both of these books, and, and again, this letters of 2nd and 3rd John, were all written by the same person. They're all drawing from the same relational encounter with Jesus. And if the Gospel of John is a laying out of, this is the Jesus that I've seen, and this is the Jesus that I've heard, I'd suggest that 1st John is a letter laying out, so here's what this means for us. This is how we're called to live in response. And I think um, that it's important for us to understand that this is John speaking because um, this is not him commanding us to do certain things. This isn't saying, you need to be loving, you need to live righteously. This is him sharing his own experience. This is him saying, hey, listen, like, I encountered the one who is love. I encountered the one who is light. And it changed everything for me. And so I want the same thing for you. I've encountered the one who is true. And I've realized it changes the way I deal with people. I want that for you. I don't know if any of you have, have met sort of people who are further along in, in their Christian walk. There are just a couple of people who I can think of where when I've had encounters with them, even if I haven't known them for very long, there's something just fundamentally attractive about them. There's something like, I almost, I feel extra love coming off of them, even in the first conversation, that makes me want to, to lean in. And, and again, I think that that's actually, again, their relationship with Jesus is actually playing out in their relationship with others. And I would say John, the reason why he's using himself as an example is that he's actually trying to paint the same picture for us. He's trying to say, hey, like I've been transformed by Christ's love, and this is what, how it has changed me. This is the way I want to live my life in response. And I want you to come alongside to walk with me in the same way that I'm going. So I think if I were to just sort of summarize like this pattern of relational connectedness. I think what John is trying to do is trying to set up this image that he has experienced of, if I know Jesus, if I experience his love, if I understand that he is the person who is true, then that changes the way I deal with others. I don't need to fight, I don't need to battle, but I do have a compelling need to share because of the transformed life I've experienced. And so as I was thinking about what this means for us, I think John's invitation to Jesus is, is the same invitation to us today, is to sort of go to him, to encounter him anew and afresh. When John does that spirograph thing, that looping over and over again, that's what his life has looked like. Not, hey, I understood Jesus's love once, and then I didn't come back to that. It's, I went back to that again. I went back to that truth again. I went back to that truth again. And each time, I saw a little bit more of Jesus. And so I think that's what he's inviting us into today. So if you're here, um, like I used to be, wrestling with the question of whether this stuff about Jesus is true, I want to invite you to ask Jesus to meet you face-to-face -face for the first time. And again, I talked a lot about 
um, this idea of wrestling with, with questions of truth, and I spent lots of time talking to people and reading and thinking about information. But in my journey to encounter with Jesus, what I realized was I can't actually think myself into faith. Like it's not just an exercise that's up here. We need to, to have a heart encounter. Um, and, and again, I can't prescribe the way that works. I think that works differently for everybody. But I know what, what worked for me is to ask him to meet me, right? And I didn't pray some awesome sort of well-worded prayers. The prayers I prayed were more these prayers of, like, Jesus, if you're real, like, I don't even know if you're out there, but, like, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And what was amazing was that he answered those prayers that each time I got stuck where I wasn't sure how to proceed, like, he was there. And so I want to encourage you to, to, again, if you want to meet Jesus, to ask him to do it, because you can't probably do it on your own. And if you're not sure how to pray that prayer, I'm happy to, I'll be around afterwards, I'd be happy to pray that with you. But um, if you would say, Yes, I, I, I'm following Jesus. Yes, I ha have this relationship. I think John's invitation to us is to continue to go back to Jesus, to continue to um, retread his steps to Jesus. And I think that for me, um, one of the things that's powerful is going, every writer in the New Testament has their own voice, their own insights, their own perspectives. So what I, what I invite, wanted to invite all of us in over the month of July is to actually encounter Jesus as John shares him. So um, maybe you might need to see how Jesus treated people. And if that's what you're feeling, like, hey, I want to see Jesus, I'd really encourage you to read the, the early section of John because in there, there are a series of stories where Jesus encounters other people. And um, when I was first sort of wrestling with my faith, um, somebody said to me, hey, you can read these stories and put yourself in the shoes of a character, and you'll be able to see Jesus and ask him, what does he want to show you? So maybe that's what you want to do. But for some others of you, maybe what you need to do is to hear what Jesus said to people. Um, in the Gospel of John, the, the latter section, um, it, the passage after Jesus' Last Supper is called the Farewell Discourse, and it's a section of almost the summary by John of Jesus's teachings. The laying out, here's what Jesus wanted his followers and those who came after them to hear. And so for me, as I've been journeying and as I've been wrestling with my relationship with, with Jesus, this has been a place where I come back to to hear about what it looks like to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus, to hear what Jesus wants to say to me. So maybe that's where you need to go. But thirdly, um, if you feel like, hey, I want to reflect on uh, the relational dynamics, maybe um, reflect on how Jesus changes what we say and how we treat people in 1 John. Again, this idea of 1 John being the commentary, it's the working out of here are some implications for our lives. Here's what it looks like to be loving with others. And for the men in the room, we're actually, I think, I don't know what day this week, Thursday, this Thursday, we're beginning a Bible study series working through each of the passages we're talking about in 1 John. So that's a great way to encounter, wrestle with um, the truth of Jesus. And um, I would say one of the things that's, that for me 
um, I've just been thinking about is 1 John's not a long letter. In fact, none of these passages are very long. And, and for me, what I feel invited into this, this July is to revisit them again and again. You can read 1 John in about 15 minutes. So what I'm going to actually be doing is I'm going to be going over this book every day throughout July. Again, because I think that this is what John did. He went back again and again and again. So you can say, hey, there's one of these that I want to revisit over and over. Or maybe, hey, in different weeks, I want to engage with John, listen to what John has to say about Jesus in different ways. But I think however you engage with it, it's through following John's footsteps, listening to what he has to say about the person he knows so well, seeing his life lived that I think allows us to see Jesus afresh. And as we begin to shift and say, hey, this is a person who I can trust. This is a person who is the source of truth. Maybe I can relinquish a little bit of my need for control, my need for, to be right. And when it comes to talking about truth, talking about these different ideas, I can hold a, a more open posture and I can point to the person who I know and who I love and say, you just, you need to know this guy. So John's inviting us to encounter Jesus.